All right, everybody. Welcome to the Fred Packard Show. Uh, today, I have a very special guest. Uh, this man really needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyways. <laughs> uh, this is Rick Tastic. So this is uh, a good friend of mine who's figured out how to live life on his terms, really, um, and kind of figure out exactly, you know, what he want. Figured out what he wants out of life, and at this point, has his own system in place, if, if you will, on how to get. You know, to this point of his life where, you know, he's living on his terms. Really, I'll let you kind of describe how you doing, Rick. Uh, thank you, Fred. I'm doing great. I wouldn't necessarily describe it as a system okay. that I use that, or maybe not as a system that I use that could be conveyed to somebody else. But I feel like I have certain points in my life that have either pushed me in a certain direction or allow me to explore. A different direction, and then getting positive reinforcement from exploring that direction just leads me to do that more. Okay. So, yeah, I'm, I guess I'm like a well-trained dog. By <laughs> are you by kind of like a, like a gypsy? Is that what you say? Oh, I just opened it. Am I supposed to open this on Oh yeah. So, <laughs> what are we drinking? We are drinking High Boy cannabis-infused social tonics. So this is supposed to make me very socialized. It's supposed to, I don't know if it's supposed to make you socialize. Just but pull up this tab. It's something that you can drink in a social setting. Pull like this tab and then what? And then you push that. Oh. Yeah, and then you can keep pushing it. Oh. It goes further. Oh wow, interesting. <laughs> yeah, this and cool. this flavor is blood orange cardamom, which I thought was interesting because I've never had a drink. I don't think I've had a drink flavored by cardamom. Cool. Well, cheers, man. I'm excited to, to try it. Cheers. I use, ooh, it tastes pretty good, actually. Uh, I use a lot of CBD um, for nerves, things like that. I think it, it helps me settle. Uh, so, Do you feel stressed out a lot? <laughs> well, I guess that's the reason why we're having this conversation. Uh, so in terms of stresses, I feel like that's kind of, you know, in society today, we all create our own, right? And I feel like you're kind of figuring out a way how to kind of take the stress out of your life. That is an interesting way of putting it. I think I would agree that we do create a lot of our own stresses. I think there are also external stresses, uh, depending on, on what part of the world and what part of the, the income scale that you live on. Right. But I think that I've managed to remove certain stressors in my life that came from some kind of internal disagreement between what I wanted out of life and how I was living life at the time. For one example, I got a degree in aerospace engineering, worked as an aerospace engineer for about four years, and then at a certain point just felt like I didn't want to be in an office every day. I had no day. idea that you had a degree as an engineer. Yeah. Aerospace engineer. So a rocket scientist. You, you're a rocket scientist? Only only by humor. Okay. Uh, but I've never actually worked on rockets. Fair enough. But you have a degree in engineering. <laughs> yeah. And uh, what, what school did you go to? Auburn. Auburn. Okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. That, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, wow. Uh, so that's interesting. So my, my uh, girlfriend works with a lot of engineers um, and I find now knowing that you're an engineer, all the engineers I know are very interesting <laughs> in the in their way, their outlooks on life. 
Um, and a lot of them are very system oriented and yeah. Yeah. Um, very structured. Um, you know, kind of like putting together Legos in, in yes. a sense, right? Yes. Um, Which I did love Legos as a child yeah. and I thoroughly enjoyed the engineering curriculum and being trained to think like an engineer. That's one of the things that they tell you a lot when you're going through an engineering program, or at least our engineering program, is that while there are different disciplines of engineering, aerospace, chemical, uh, medical, chemical, um, electrical, environmental, what you're really learning is a way of thinking, a way of approaching problems and a way of developing solutions to those problems. So while I haven't used my aerospace degree in like six years now, and I don't know if I'll go back into engineering at any point, I'm still grateful for the education and the training because thinking like an engineer is an incredibly uh, useful way of thinking when you're going through the world. Being able to see a problem and in your mind just start breaking it down into its individual components and how um, you might come up with a solution or several solutions right. to that problem or just seeing how seeing something and then in your mind trying to understand how it would work based on your understanding of, of physics right now what's interesting about being an engineer uh, from a money standpoint um, and sorry, sorry for the noises, everybody, because we're, this is my first in-person interview. Everything I've done thus far has been uh, virtually. Uh, so this is actually a really cool experience to have. Uh, but, you know, I don't have the biggest studio, but, you know, I got a dog, dog eating, <laughs> eating a bone in my feet right now. So sorry if you hear that, too. But um, what's interesting about engineering is it's one of the best well-paid professions yeah. as well. So when you were getting into starting your degree, did that weigh on that at all, that, that decision to? Yes, because originally I was going to go to school for automotive design because I wanted to design cars. And then at a certain point, uh, another um, defining moment in my life, I guess, uh, I changed that major because I didn't want to turn my what I saw as my passion at the time which was art I didn't want to turn my passion into a career and then get burned out on it and not want to do art right which is uh funny how it ended up me just losing interest in art altogether once I started working full-time as an engineer but one of the reasons that I looked at aerospace engineering as the next logical choice uh, was because I knew with an engineering degree I could get a job regardless and aerospace engineering sounded like the most interesting of the engineering disciplines at the time yeah, so money came into it but more from the side of I know I'll be able to get a job with this degree right um, which I feel like a lot of kids getting out of high school it's okay to call them kids or not but in my opinion when I was 18 I wasn't an adult yet um, I'm still a child at 35 <laughs> um when I was getting out of high school or the kids that are getting out of high school now, not knowing what they want to do with their lives. Right. I think that's a huge thing. And I think that's a huge problem in society today. You kind of force people to kind of pick what they want to be for the rest of their life. Relatively yeah. Quick. Yeah. It's a terrible system. And, and something that really dives into that is, you know, economics, right? So it's 
when I'm getting out of school, it's like, okay, well, what jobs pay well? Yeah. You know, your doctors, your CPAs, your engineers. I think CPA is the number one paying profession right now in the United States, and then engineer is like number two or three. Um, and if they include a uh, software software engineer in there, it makes the you know what's interesting is doctors actually uh, not that high on the list anymore. Really? Yeah, they're like they're still like top fifteen, I think. They may be top ten, but they're towards ten. Uh, hmm. So they're like top they're towards the bottom of that top ten list now. Um, just came out the other day. I was I was, I was listening to that. Um, I think it was actually listening to Joe Rogan who was discussing that, but uh, it's it's interesting to think that people make a lot of their decisions on money, right? And, yeah. and an interesting conversation, well, the conversation I want to have with you is you've kind of strayed away from that. So you broke away from the systems essentially, and you broke away from the idea of this, you know, get out of school, get a good job, you know, save, 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 retire, die right <laughs> like yeah kind of you've broke you've broken away from that um, at least for the time being yeah yeah for the time at least for the time being but explain to people what you do now the way i started answering that question is very little because on a given week i tend to work 10 to 25 hours something like that mm -hmm. the most stable part of what i do for work is writing on a weekly basis i write the show notes for a podcast uh the art of charm if anybody wants to check it out art of charm the podcast. art of charm uh it's a lot about confidence social skills networking uh body language um everything that goes into human interaction more or less and what it means for you to master yourself become the version of yourself that you want to be the ex external self it sounds like though no not necessarily no? it's it's very much internal uh the way that you see yourself the way that you view yourself the uh how much you believe in yourself, that's really what confidence is, right. how much you believe in yourself and your ability to express that to other people. How good are you at expressing your genuine self to another person? Well, that let, let, me, let me chime in on that because if you're talking about body language, right, as an essence of that, teaching people how to display body language. So I'm a card player, right? I play poker mm -hmm. and body language is a big part of poker. Um, I don't know if you play cards or not, but a little bit. Okay, so I participated in a couple uh, tournaments in uh, the Ocean's Eleven Casino. Okay, right? up in Ocean Side. Okay, um, so w with body language, if you lean in, you're interested, right? Yeah. If you're leaning back, you're not so interested. For cards, if you if there's a flush draw, so what a flush draw is for, for people that aren't familiar with cards, if there's three hearts on the table. And you're playing against an opponent, they check their cards, there's a 75% chance that they don't actually have a flush. Okay. Right. So body language kind of goes into that. The way yeah. people, if they're if they show off their hand, yeah. right, uh, they're they're really proud of their hand. Um, you know, th things of that nature. So you can tell if people are bluffing um, or not. I read Phil Hellmuth's book, uh, which is a which is a professional yeah. poker player, and it's all about body language. So gotcha. just kind of dive into what you're saying though. If you're teaching people how to express their true selves and body language is a component of that what if you're 
a depressed person, you're a sad person, but you're teaching people the qualities yeah, of absolutely. you know how to display themselves confidently, yeah. but what if they're not a confident person? Right. Right at heart. Right. So is it truly showing somebody the inner like are you familiar with the phrase mind follows body? Body follows mind. Uh, mind follows mind follows body, body follows mind. So what you think like your perception is your reality? In a sense, the the way that you carry yourself influences the way that you think, the way that you see other people, the way that you feel about other people. Like if you just if you sit here and just like roll your shoulders in, cross your arms, and just look down, you will have a subtle yet immediate sensation that you just I don't really feel like talking cold I'm closed off I'm not making eye contact with you whereas if I sit up and I look straight and I roll my shoulders back get relaxed I feel more relaxed I feel uh, more positive I feel more open I feel more more social I'm more receptive to to conversation okay so it's, more- so it's Stuff like that, that you can influence your state of mind simply by how you sit, how you stand, how you walk, how you interact with people. Uh, It's hard to argue that the mind and the body are separate things when they can have such strong effects on one another. So one might argue that you are manipulating yourself by standing confidently because it will give you confidence. But in reality, like your body is part of you. Your mind is part of you, your body is part of you. And for whatever reason, this consciousness thing that we have allows us to dictate what our body does and what our mind does. And then they have this weird back and forth relationship. So, so, if I, if I was a depressed person and I start training myself to show myself as a more confident person by body language, mm-hmm. in turn, I would start feeling more confident. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to fix your depression, but it will certainly make you feel better than if you were to just walk around, head looking down, not smiling, not making eye contact with anybody. Right. We, as humans, we are social animals, so we we draw our, uh, our our value and our fulfillment from the connections that we have with other people around us. So we seem to be entering this weird phase in human history where we are trying to isolate ourselves from one another, and it is leading to more depression, more anxiety, more mental health issues. It's interesting you say that as well. So I'm reading right now um, a hunter-gatherer's guide to the 21st Mm -hmm. century, right? Um, And I think it's Brent Weinstein, I think, is the the author of it. Okay. I think he wrote it with his wife. Um, I didn't know he wrote that book. I know him, though. Yeah. Um, So it's kind of talking about how we are these social animals, but we are social animals for our clan, mm-hmm. 
right? And our and we're we're not meant to be exposed to ten thousand people to ten thousand people yeah. in a day. We're not meant to be exposed on social media the way we are. Meant yeah. like our bodies have not caught up to technology. Right. It's kind of the the aspect of this book. And when when you say we're social creatures, I would fully agree with that. Um, and maybe the reason people are isolating themselves today is because we're overstimulated by the amount of people. I can see where that argument would come from. But it doesn't hold weight in areas that still feel the effects of the isolation, but they aren't exposed to that many people in a day, right? In people in suburbs that live uh, in not as densely populated areas as people who live in a city uh, yeah. or uh, housing development, uh, who are still experiencing symptoms of of loneliness and depression and anxiety because. They may or may not have a tight knit community amongst their neighborhood, amongst their neighbors. They might not be participating in local politics, so they don't have uh, a sense of connection to a, a sense of, I guess, re- social responsibility to their community because they're not helping to determine its its future. <clears throat> social networks, social media, has helped to isolate us from one another even though we think we are like i guess physically we are more connected because of how easily we can access each other but emotionally we don't feel better about ourselves when we scroll through our news feeds and see everybody else celebrating multiple positive occasions and we wonder why our lives are not as as stellar mm-hmm. as that uh have you have you have you watched the documentary social dilemma yeah um i mean these the, the these apps facebook instagram pinterest um twitter they're all designed like a video game yeah right like uh i thought something interesting they were saying is you know you can have uh, we're, we're almost trained like dogs, really, with yeah. these with these social platforms. Yeah. Because you can have a platform where things just update automatically, um, but they they have things you have to swipe down to update your feed. Yeah. Well, that's supposed to simulate like a lever at a slot machine. Yeah. Right. You swipe down, and you win a prize. The yeah. prizes, new new stuff on your feed. Yeah. Just like when you swipe down, you might hit a jackpot. Things are spinning. It's all designed to get you hooked. Yeah. Right, um, and people usually put the unless they're talking about politics, people usually put the the best version of themselves yeah. online, which kind of got me back to thinking about your body language thing. Um, you know, the, the contrast between those two things, where it's if I'm putting the best version of myself in my body language, you're physically and mentally training your mind for a period of time to convey your muscles and be sync. You're syncing your body, yeah. right? So and I do in turn you mentally right. feel the effects of, of those changes. Whereas on social media, you only have to take a picture for five seconds. Yeah. And then you post that picture and then there's no there's no mental There's no feedback. You, there's no you're not syncing anything. You're just putting something out there and then it's out there and it's done. Um, so I, I can understand why you know, when we put our best foot forward physically, you know, and trying to sync our body with our mind, 
you actually can get some some actual you know good things come from that yeah. whereas posting online there's literally no satisfaction it's yeah. just how many likes did i get yeah because yeah, uh, you're comments? never going to get enough likes you're right. never going to get enough comments you're right. never going to get the the, the perfect form of approval and affirmation that that you're looking for when you put stuff out there for other people to to criticize and, and or support comment comment on uh, when the entire algorithm just isn't meant for that yeah it's meant to keep you on keep you on and keep you checking Mm-hmm. Um, so let's kind of get back to, you know, you, you figured out this way to kind of live life outside the normal constructs of society in a sense, in a sense, in a sense, um, where, you know, where most people, the biggest focus is work. Your biggest focus is peace. I would say peace, and, peace and balance. Um, you know, I, I would kind of contribute the way I see you is almost to like a not not a monk, but yeah, I've in, heard that before. <laughs> in in a sense where you're you're focusing on this balance, right, between whether you call it work life balance, but I think it's even more life. I think you lean towards life, yeah, and I think you lean towards mental balance, yeah, more than anything. Um, and you know, so how do you go from engineer, right? Somebody who's on this path to making bank, right? You're gonna have the house, the cars, financial stability. You know, that's what most people want nowadays, right? You can, hopefully you can sense the sarcasm. Yeah. That's what that's what makes people happy, um, right? Uh, so so how do you shift gears? What makes you shift gears to, you know what? Maybe I only want to work 10, 15 hours a week, and I want to travel and I want to experience life and culture and focus more internally on myself versus externally on things the full answer to that takes place over a number of years but to highlight a a few moments in there that uh mark that trail the first one was actually meeting who i thought was going to be the woman i was going to spend the rest of my life with and it's funny how a woman will do that. Too. It is. It is. <laughs> uh, that that was that meeting was part of a larger picture in which I was super stoked for my life. I loved my friends. I loved what I did in my free time. I loved being able to uh, travel and and go on adventures. And I just met this uh, person who um, she and I were just crazy about each other. And so all of that put into perspective the fact that every day I had to go into an office and sit at a desk for eight, nine, 10, 11 hours. That piece didn't feel like it fit. It didn't feel like when everything else is awesome, this is mediocre or maybe a little more than that because of the the stability and and interesting uh, shit that you learn. But that romance and what my life was like around that time uh, led me to just 
break away from engineering the first time. Then the next time I broke away, it was after actually reading a book called Lynchpin, which is not on、uh, the list,、um, but I had thought about putting it on the list. When we talk about the list,、uh, so I asked Rick to come up with a list of. So this podcast is primarily about books, right? Whether it's I'm interviewing authors or talking about books I've read or reviews,、um, or even I'm talking with you know. People like Rick himself here. It's not not necessarily not. You are an author, technically. You are an author. You write not show notes.、Author. You're not a published author. Maybe I'm a published author. Now that I have stuff on online. Yeah, you write for a living. Yeah, essentially, right. So, so、yeah. you you are a writer,、um, and a lot of people that listen to this podcast have interest in writing and making a career out of it, or just enjoy hearing people's stories. So. I asked Rick to come up with a list of five influential books, his most, his top five influential books that made an impact on him and his life,、um, and we'll get into that here in a little bit. When he, so when he was referring to his list, that's what he's talking about. Good clarification. Yeah. So this book, Lynchpin, I can't remember who wrote it. It's a famous author too, famous in the marketing space. <sighs> Try looking up real quick. What's the guy on、uh, Joe Rogan show that he always has?、Uh, Jared or.、Uh, Jamie, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Jamie, can you look this up yeah, real quick? Yeah, yeah. Come on in.、Uh, Lynchpin. So, Lynchpin. If I recall correctly, because it's been several years since I I listened Seth to Seth Godin. Seth Godin. There we go. Lynchpin by Seth Godin. Seth Godin's a famous、um, writer and an author. Published in 2010. So, Lynchpin. The idea of the Lynchpin is it's the critical piece in.、Um, In a system、uh, that if you remove the linchpin, the entire thing crumbles. Okay. So the idea in、like、this book, linchpin, yeah, you remove the, the pin, pin and, and then the pin, and then the grenade is, is、uh, started. So the idea in linchpin is that in today's world, in order to be as successful as you want to be, if you were going to operate in the, the corporate space. You want to make yourself so valuable that they won't fire you, because the people who get fired are the people who are not linchpins. Because you're not going to fire the linchpins. Linchpins are too valuable to the company、uh, to let go. But again, if I recall correctly, I'm pretty sure it's from linchpin. The idea, the underlying idea, is that in this capitalist system that we live in. Every company is simply looking for the cheapest gear that will fit into the machine that will output the most value.、Mm-hmm. Not necessarily looking for the most qualified candidate, so that they can pay them the most. They're looking for the、uh, candidate that meets the minimum qualifications. To do the job, pretty much how our government does contracting. <laughs> <Yeah> . So they'll get a bunch of people that are going to bid for a job. They're going to take the cheapest person、yeah. who will get the job done. Yeah.、Uh, so when you're running a business, you want to maximize profits. So you want to pay the least amount for labor that will give you the most amount of return. Right. So it was something about reading that. At that time in my life, when I was working as an engineer again, and I believe I had just traveled to Thailand, 
and just had like a really great two weeks. Uh, so the high of international travel and, and backpacking and whatnot. And I just became instantly disenchanted by the idea of working for a, I, I guess, medium to large Was this your business. first big trip? Uh, it was my first solo backpacking trip when I went to Thailand. Because okay. before that I had traveled abroad, but it was always with other people. And so this is the first time that I was like, fuck it, I'll just go by myself. And so reading that book and having that trip under my belt, I just felt like there's a better way to live than being exploited by something or someone and a sense of freedom out there that is achievable in some form. I just hadn't figured out how yet. Although I don't know if I've still yet figured it out, but maybe I have. I think it's where I was still growing, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So hopefully you haven't 100% figured it out, but if you did, good for you. Yeah. Um, so at a certain point beyond that, uh, I decided to leave the country again and take a much longer trip, which is when I went to Central America and I spent like six months backpacking down from Mexico to uh, Nicaragua. Um, and so before that trip, I sold all my stuff. I got rid of everything so that I basically just had a backpack. So that was to me what I envisioned as the transition from engineer to, I guess, nomad was uh, the initial spark from the romance and the life that I was living, leaving engineering, and then culminating later in finally just getting rid of yeah, my I would, material I, possessions. I, I would, I would say maybe, maybe not monk, but modern day nomad. I think that might be kind of... All right, so modern day nomad. Uh, so what through, through the lens of, of traveling, through the lens of you know being somebody who kind of broke away from the the chains of modern day society, who's kind of figured out a way right to live life on your own terms and do things that you want to do, and not being confined. I mean, money obviously still is important, right? Yeah. You need it. Um, still a necessity. It. It's not like you're living off the land, but not yet. Not yet. Um, but you figure out a way how to make money not the primary focus of your life, right? So, right. and you're still doing what a lot of people would want to do. You're traveling. You're seeing the world. You're you do things that I'm doing. Right? I work a nine to five. I work you know 45, 50 hours a week. But we, we're living a pretty comfortable lifestyle. Uh, if anything, I say you're even more free than I am. But, you know, I, I have different responsibilities, you can say. You know, kid, family, things like that that I'm, that I'm house tied to, right? Um, if I, if, What advice would you give somebody who might be listening to this, working a nine-to-five, miserable? What, what would you say to that person? I think one of the most important what I think is one of the most important pieces of advice that I could give someone who might be listening to this, who is in a nine to five and feels like it doesn't fit 
I would highly recommend going on some kind of trip by yourself. Whether that means a multi-day hiking trip near where you live or in the same country that you live, up to a multi-week or multi-month long solo trip outside of the country. Granted, you could do either one of those in reverse as well. Uh, I'm just thinking in terms of what might be feasible for for someone who does who does feel stuck. And generally, money and time are two reasons that someone might feel stuck in in what they what they're doing, what they are. And the reason I recommend the international solo uh, travel is because of how much it has taught me about myself. And in the conversations that I've had with other people that I've met on my travels, as well as people that I've met who have also traveled, it is a common sentiment that traveling by yourself is one of the greatest teachers that you can have in your life because you are forced to rely on yourself or potentially with you know a couple other people around you but that's the reason that i recommend doing it solo because then you have to rely on yourself and the reason that i recommend an international trip is the language barrier that the language and cultural barrier between you and another person humbles you it forces you to be humble you have to resort to just primitive ways of of communicating. You have to be nice and polite in order to get another person to either pay attention to you or to give you the time of day. And then you have to communicate using very basic means, very simple sentences, very simple phrases. If it's a country or a place in which nobody can understand English, period, you have to come up with some creative ways. You have to be able to point at pictures and make symbols with your hands. then there's the the aspect of um, you know where are you going to stay? What are you going to do? Uh, how are you going to determine your day? How open are you going to be to to meeting other people? And so, to me, all of that ends up giving you a a belief in yourself, which is also known as confidence, uh, confidence in yourself to go into the unknown and come out the other side relatively unscathed. So for me, that transitions to something like leaving the nine to five, because if the nine to five is the thing that you've always known and you don't know anything else, that's a scary proposition to ask somebody to just walk away from everything that they've ever known. But if you can make a small step, such as buying a one-way ticket to another city or another country and figuring everything else out once you get there, that allows you to build up that confidence and and be able to tell yourself, no matter what happens, based on my decisions that I can own up to, everything will be okay. Beyond that, it is uh, totally up to whatever that person wants to do after they have that experience and come and return back to whatever their life is. For some people, having that experience can then teach them the appreciation and the gratitude for the life that they have that uh, may have felt like it sucked a lot because you're just in it every day, 
But then when you go out and you see how other people around the world live, uh, you see how other people interact, you see and hear what other people's value systems are. It it can be not always. It can be easier to then return to life and be like, "Wow, I'm so glad that this is my life," and not、um, scrounging for scraps in a third world country. Yeah, so I, I think I had the the United States version of that、uh, for myself. So I grew up in Buffalo, New York, right, and kind of a. Blue collar town,、um, you know. You're, you're raised to go to school, either go into a trade, go to school and get、uh, you know white collar job or a nursing job or what have you, become a lawyer, whatever,、um, and raise a family, get a house, retire. Right.、Um, I made the decision when I was 23 to move to San Diego、um, and just transfer with my job, not knowing anybody out here. My sister was here, right? But I wasn't close to my sister now. You know, now that I've been living here, but at the time, her and I were not that close. Gotcha.、Um, so I moved here. I found a roommate off Craigslist. I was on my own. I left everything and everyone I knew, group of friends, family, all back in, in Buffalo. My entire family is still there to this day. So I, I would not be who I am if I didn't make that move,、yeah. right? And that to me was a very just the transition from who I was to who I am now, huge transition.、Um, whether that was just me growing up and now I'm in my thirties,、yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, but I I don't think I would have the same outlooks on life. I still I go back home now, and a lot of my friends still have the same opinions. Yeah. And I've I've grown out of those opinions. Yeah, you know I mean,、um, and I've just gotten a different taste of life,、uh, and I feel like I've lived more than somebody. Absolutely. I mean, you know, not to you know point you know people live good lives in Buffalo. I love Buffalo. I'm still a diehard Bills fan. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, but I feel like I've lived and experienced things more so, and I've gotten two. It's almost like I lived two lives. Yeah. That makes sense, and I can attribute that when I tri- traveled to Italy and Greece. Um, I went over there. I was on a school trip, and that was the most liberating thing ever. Yeah, and I was on a school school trip. Yeah, right. So,、um, I could I can only imagine going somewhere on your own and getting lost.、Mm-hmm. Kind of what you're saying,、um, finding yourself.、Um, writing does that for me. Yeah, and I, I feel like it's because it's an expression of、yeah. yourself. Right, traveling, you find yourself. You're expressing yourself. You're You're learning who you are. You kind of do that when you write as well.、Um, now, reading, on the other hand, I find that to be more of a distraction. Kind of like, w- w- really? W- well, it depends on what you're reading, right? So, if I'm like right now, I'm reading the Wheel Time series. Love it. It's a fantasy series. I'm a big fantasy guy. Love it.、Um, but to me, it's a distraction from reality. Right,、okay. I'm entering into the minds of a fantasy world, which I know it isn't real, but I feel for these characters, and you get attached. It's like watching a good movie, but、yeah. I'm visualizing it in my brain. So it's almost like an exercise. I think that might be a better word versus、um, you know distraction, but it's an exercise of my brain. Whereas I feel like writing is an expression、mm-hmm. of my brain, whereas traveling solo. You're left with your own thoughts, and I kind of look at that similar to writing, where you're left with your own thoughts in your head, and you have to figure out yourself. Yeah.、Um, so it's two very similar, in my opinion, mindsets.、Um, now, you you came up with a list, list of books. I did. Right. 
Uh, now, for those of you listening, so I asked I asked Rick to to come up with a, a, a list, not in any order, just a just an influential list of books that have kind of shifted his mindset, changed his perspective on things, and have really made I guess been, become a party, really, right? Yeah. Um, so what what let's, let's hear this list. Let's hear let's hear this first this first book. So to preface this list. You asked me to come up with a list of uh, books that have impacted my life. And interestingly enough, I had already had a list of the, because people would ask me for recommendations for books or ask me about um, the best books or my favorite books that, that I've read. And to me, it was just always easy to choose five. So I just revisited that list and then looked over it to see if those books are still relevant, if the ways that those books in, impacted me, uh, if those impacts are still um, current or if I've grown out of those those impacts. So the five books that I came up with, do you want to, do you want me to list them all and then go? Whatever you want, man. I mean, honestly, you can go, uh, I mean, why don't we start with, let's, yeah, list them all. I'm, cause I'm curious at this point. I just want to hear okay, the names first. Fair, fair. <laughs> So again, these are not in any order. I And the way that I defined impact is each of these books is like the, I don't know if I'm using the terminology right, you will though. Uh, each one of these books is like the, the wall of a billiards table. That the ball is my worldview or the way that I was going about life. And then reading each one of these books more or less caused uh, myself to ricochet off a bumper off a bumper and go in a completely different direction okay so these books are zen flesh zen bones number one debt the first five thousand years it's number two how to change your mind number three uh then vagabonding an uncommon guide to the art of long-term world travel and then the last one is the obstacle is the way. Okay, so she said Zen, Zen flesh, Zen bones. Okay, let's start with that. Okay. Zen flesh, Zen. Bones. I've never heard of that. So uh, that, that sounds interesting. <laughs> that is one of my favorite books. I have had the audio book since I was in college, which was about fifteen years ago, and I would. It's one of those books for me anyway that I can casually listen to over and over again. I have no idea how many times I've listened to it, but it's it's got to be in like the 50 to 100 times range, if not more than that. Because what it is is a collection of stories from Zen and pre-Zen writings. So stories that have been collected, I think over the past 500 to 1000 years, something like that. And each one of the stories forces forces you to think in a certain way. And the, the stories themselves teach values, teach lessons. They help you to uh, develop a way of thinking that allows you to be more in line with the universe in a sense. So I'm trying to think of an example from 
see. So it's kind of like an anthology, almost like, um, is it is it actual stories or is it kind of like, is it? You could interpret it as a combination of actual accounts of actual events over to the other side of the spectrum of maybe this was made up for the sake of teaching a lesson, okay. conveying a lesson, conveying a value. Right. At this point, it would be likely impossible to tell which ones are real and which ones are, are made up. So it's kind of like, what is it, Love, Sex, and Robots or whatever? What is that? It's on Netflix. Um, it's basically like an anthology of different robot stories. Okay, yeah. Uh, but each of them have a, a different meaning. Yeah, so these are stories that can be as long as, you know, 10, 20 seconds to tell all the way up to several minutes, 10, 20 minutes to, to go through. So I'm trying to think of um, <laughs> Sorry, my dog is trying to play fetch while we're having this yeah. podcast. <laughs> the very first story is the story of a man, story of a uh, Zen master who is going through a town. It's raining. He needs new shoes. He goes into a, a storefront or a house. Um, to buy a pair of sandals that are in the window. The woman invites him in, gives him gives him a pair of sandals, and she seems depressed. Everybody in the house seems depressed. And the Zen master asks, you know, why, why does everybody seem upset? What's wrong? And the woman says, my husband is a gambler and a drunkard. Uh, when he loses money, he gets drunk and comes home and is angry. Uh, when he wins, he goes out drinking all night and comes home drunk and uh, passes out. So he, the Zen master tells her, okay, well, go get, he gives her some money and says, go get some uh, fish and a nice bottle of wine and I will stay up and wait for him. So the husband gets home, he's drunk. The Zen master uh, tells him, oh, you know, your wife was kind enough to let me stay here for the night. So I offered to buy some fish and wine. You may have it. And he drinks it, eats the fish, passes out. Wakes up in the morning, sees the Zen master still in his house meditating. And says, oh, uh, who, who are you? How did you get here? And he tells him his name, I can't remember his name, but he's basically the teacher, one of the emperor's teachers. And so the man is immediately ashamed, uh, asks for his forgiveness and offers to carry his things down the road to see him off. And that's like a, an apology to okay. make up for his behavior. So uh, Zen master says, yeah, okay, that's fine. After the first three miles, the Zen master, um, says, you know, you may turn around. And the guy says, just a couple more miles. So they continue on. Several miles later, the Zen master says, okay, you may turn around now. He says, no, 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 uh, 10 more miles. So they continue on. And then finally, Zen master again says, all right, you've followed me far enough. You can turn around now. And the guy says, I am gonna follow you the rest of my life. And that man, who followed that Zen master for the rest of his life ends up going on to become one of the famous Zen masters of Zen Buddhism. But what about his wife? That is, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a perfectly valid question. 
um, one of the one of the common one of the common threads within some of these stories is a greater commitment to Zen and Buddhism over one's earthly commitments. Okay. So over one's station in life, over one's family, um, over one's job, over one's material possessions. The most important uh, pursuit is the pursuit of one's enlightenment, so to speak. Sure. Would it, would it, so obviously I'm going to kind of dive into the story a little bit. Wouldn't it, from a Zen perspective, because now he's, in my mind, especially someone who's in a relationship, has a child. In my mind, if I this situation happened to me and I left my child and my wife behind and took off on this adventure and became a Zen master, I would always have that baggage like in the back yeah. of my ear, right? Wouldn't it have been more of a choice to say, listen, wife, come with me on this trip? Except that monks are not allowed or not supposed to have uh, a spouse or children. Interesting. Even if they do, they just completely have a good life? Yeah. That's pretty harsh. So (laughs) that is, it's one story out of a collection of of many. No, I mean, it's a good story. Yeah. Uh, It's just from a person who is in a family. Um, it's and wanting to have that type of mindset where it's like peace, calm, collectiveness, mm-hmm. which I think that's kind of what the purpose of this is like being kind of in control of your mind and letting go of the things that like have control of you. In today's modern society, that would be social media, um, that could be you know, materialistic things. Oh, I need that car or or whatever. And yeah, like, bigger that, house, bigger house, bigger, bigger, newer TV, yeah, newer yeah. devices, all so, that stuff. So, like. I totally get with that where it's like you don't need all this shit right you don't need to have all these things right like i don't need that xbox i don't need you know a bike like you just need yourself right um now do you believe in (laughs) so so what about that collection kind of so what the book helped me to develop is this idea of no matter what happens in the world, no matter what happens around me, I'm still me. So it's not what happens around me that matters, it's how I respond to what happens around me. The idea of The idea that there's not a whole lot worth really getting upset over in the grand scheme of things out of you know all the just random stuff that happens throughout one's day uh, a lot of things that can upset us or lead us to anger uh, can spark certain emotions in us 
very little of that is is worth getting upset over. And if very little of that is worth getting upset over, there's a lot in this world that is worth appreciating. That is, there's a lot in this world that is beautiful, even just the simplest, most mundane things, right? Walking outside this door and seeing a butterfly. Uh, just the fact that that butterfly is alive and I am blessed with being able to see it when when I walk out of that door. Sure. Okay. Um, man, I, I want to bring the Zunmaster out here too. <laughs> Give him, ask him, what is it like leaving your wife? <laughs> you know, um, I, I would imagine in terms of traveling and experiencing things and like kind of, I think I think a good lesson is sometimes it's okay to let go. Yeah. Right. Um, sometimes. You know, so you know, people that might be in a bad relationship, you know, and you might, or maybe you know, you're you know not what? the right one. For you know what? That Here's, I would like to give uh, a a a story, an account from the book that is a uh, a better reflection of uh, sure. what I'm trying to convey. There is a story about a um, woman working in a fish market who her parents find out that she's pregnant and they demand to know who the father is. So the woman, the girl, she's a girl, maybe like teenager or a uh, young adult. She tells her parents that the father is a uh, Buddhist monk, Zen monk that lives nearby. So when the child is born, the parents take the child to the Zen monk and say, this is your responsibility now. We don't want to handle this. You are the father. And all the monk says is, is that so? Takes the child, cares for the child, uh, gets food, gets milk, however he can for the child, and raises the child. At a certain point, the mother, the, um, the girl who gave birth to the child, can't handle it anymore and goes to her parents and says and tells them that the father the actual father of the child is just some dude from the fish market where where she was working so the parents are now incredibly upset um for not only being lied to but also having basically handed off the, their grandchild to somebody who is not the father of nor the nor responsible nor responsible <laughs> for the child so they go to the monk and beg his forgiveness ask for the child back and something else and the monk's only response is is that so and hands the child back so from the perspective of the monk regardless of whether or not he was the child's father he accepted what was being put into his life and decided to do his best to care for the child regardless of how that looked to the community because the idea of a monk having a child and raising a child it was taboo uh, not allowed it didn't matter to him what mattered to him well based on the story was that he was just going to do his best at whatever it is that was put into his life and then when they wanted the child back all right here you go i did my best to take care of the child you may have the child back. No harm feel no hard feelings. I think I think the, the moral of the story is to just be present in the moment from the monk's perspective. Whatever comes at you, you deal with it at that moment. Um, 
you know, and you can kind of when you when you focus on the task at hand and you know think about the past or the future and you're more present in the yeah. moment, you can accomplish great things. Yeah. Um, when you being when present, being present, arguably be the um, one of the primary foci yeah. foci of Zen Buddhism. Okay, so so book two on this list uh, was debt five thousand years. Right. So the title is debt colon the first five thousand years. Okay. And that book is basically a history of human economies in a sense. The the birth of currency, the birth of of debt, and how debt was a factor in the development of human civilization in a sense now the does, reason does it get to cryptocurrency <laughs> okay <laughs> now the reason that this book changed my life is actually a, an exchange in the very beginning of the book in which the author gives an account of i think he was at like a cocktail party or dinner party or something like that and had a conversation with a woman there that revolved around uh, international lending, the IMF, the Inter Inter International Monetary Fund, because the conversation revolved around do countries, specifically poor countries, have an actual obligation to repay all of the debt that is, in a sense, put on them by first world countries who go in and provide them with infrastructure or uh, manufacturing facilities, uh, basically any time that, um, yeah, a first world, a wealthy country goes into a poor country with the, I guess, goal of helping them, uh, but in many times leaves them with a crippling amount of debt that they will likely never be able to repay. And a lot of times some of these third world countries are run by dictators who simply pocket that money as well and then quote unquote force their people to pay back the debt. So anyway, that story- Sounds like Afghanistan. <laughs> that story um, was premised on the, on the idea that financial debt, if you have a financial debt that you are morally obligated to repay it. And the author's point is that debt is not a moral obligation that you have. It's a financial obligation, but we, have spun ourselves into thinking that it is a moral obligation, that in a sense you are a bad person if you don't pay back your debts. You're, the reason- You're not gonna like America in the future. Well- With the credit, the, the social yeah. credit scores that oh, are coming. <laughs> well, this country's uh, direction is uh, a great topic for it's basically, another day. China has a, a social credit score pretty much right yeah. now. And, seems like we're kind of heading in that direction but continue on so the idea that i do not have a moral obligation to pay back my debt changed the way that i look at money in for me was a, a very positive direction for large corporations that have lent me money it's probably not a great direction for them because i any 
feeling in me to pay back large corporations that have lent me money uh, just vanished. And as a result, I felt immensely free from the debt that I had and currently still have. Uh, I I would probably still be stuck at a nine to five if the like primary driving force in my life was how am I gonna pay back? How am I gonna keep making these monthly payments? Versus, well, I'll just stop making monthly payments and boom, oh my gosh, I have so much freedom now. Do you, do, you, do you feel a moral obligation at all? Mm-mm. So interesting distinction. Anytime I've borrowed money from a friend or a family member, pay back with interest. I feel a moral obligation to pay back money from people that I know personally who have lent me money. I do not feel that same obligation toward large corporations who build it into their business model to account for people who default on their debt. Why they charge interest, because they need to account for people who are not going to pay back their debts. They need to turn a profit somehow. Well, I mean, my my profession, I deal with a lot of banks, I deal with CPAs, um, I deal with businesses, right? I deal in the money world of things. Mm -hmm. Um, And, it's interesting and fascinating the the bank side of things and how much of a like for a bank to, the same way I look at it is like a police officer having a quota mm-hmm. for tickets, right? When a police officer is like, oh, I need to have fifty speeding tickets this month or you know solicit whatever. Yeah, that's we, what if nobody speeds? Yeah, in that month, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's similar in my mind when a bank is like, I need to lend out X amount of money. Yeah. Or I need to open up X amount of new accounts. And it's like, well, what if the demand's not there? Yeah. Like, I view, if people view banks as a service, it's wrong. Yeah. It's a business. Yeah. Banks are a business. And most of them are privately owned. Right? So they're a business. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, I get that. Um, Small mom pop shop, you know, versus a big corporation, and we're talking about big corporations yeah. here, right? We're talking about the big, big boys, right there. Yeah. And and the other thing, but why not go the route of bankruptcy, or is this debt that can't be? Um. Well, funny enough, the when I initially walked away from my debt, it was with the intention of I just need some fucking space from this financial weight that is just following me around. Can you, can you defer, defer the debt? You can only defer for so long. Okay. It's like six months or something like that. Okay. I, I had done it a couple times when I was unemployed. And so the intent was, let me just have some space and I will pay back all my debt in the future. Which at this point, I would still do if at some point I... Uh, accumulated um, some amount of of money beyond what I just used to um, have a cushion and, and bum around. And to be fair, that's still how I view it. Uh, I just 
am currently in a uh don't give a shit phase. Yeah, don't give a shit phase. Like, I'll pay it. The, the thing I'll is, pay it, it when I can pay it, but I'm not going to cripple. That's the word. My life, right? Just to be a slave to this money you're not that live, I owe corporations. You're not going to have a corporation missing. dictate the way you want to live your life. It's it's almost as like it's impossible to pay back at this point, anyways. But you're not going to. They're not going to force you to live a life you didn't want to live. Right. So, debt, first 5,000 years, How to Change Your Mind. How to Change Your Mind is a book written about psychedelics by a guy who has never done psychedelics, uh, Michael Pollan. Pollan. Uh, he's written several books. He's, um, he's a, a well-regarded writer, journalist. And the book is about his journey to learn more about psychedelics, learn more about the history of psychedelics, the culture, uh, the culture throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s revolving around drugs and psychedelics. That book changed my life because before then, I had done mushrooms and, and LSD, but on infrequent, infrequent uh, intervals and mostly just a party. Like, oh, we're going to a rave, we're going to, we're going to camp, or not camping, we're going to a bar, we're going to uh, some big event this weekend. That book showed me a healthy way of looking at something as powerful as psilocybin or LSD and all the other psychedelics. It showed me that there was a way to explore and maybe not understand consciousness, but at least get a different look at it. To have a way of exploring oneself internally with a, an educational objective. Kind of like you were saying uh, about travel. Yeah, right. So if traveling is a great way to learn about yourself as a person and about the world around you, psychedelics are a great way to learn about the world around you in a very different way, as well as yourself internally in a very different way. Maybe, maybe the difference between exploring what is uh, in the sense of travel versus exploring the past, present, and future of something using psychedelics. Or even yourself. Like, just, yeah. I mean, I think, I've never done psychedelics. Um, well, I, I don't think I've ever done psychedelics. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the it's always it's always interesting it's always fascinated me psilocybin the research that's been coming out on that is it's really encouraging mm -hmm. and it, it leads me to a very hopeful future i mean a lot of this you know war on drugs and um everything that that came about because of that the crackdown drugs are bad make them all legal and all that so now you're starting to see certain drugs kind of pop back up into the ether right like marijuana is yeah. legal um, psilocybin is legal in certain states. Or at least it's decriminalized. Right, decriminalized, right, yeah. decriminalized. 
um, which eventually will lead to legalization. It's the step yeah. for right. Yeah. So you're seeing certain things, and I've always been the person who said, "Listen, make them all legal." Yeah, that's my philosophy because. If you make them legal, it's going to make it... People are going to get them anyways. Yeah. I mean, I live in some San Diego, right? I see it everywhere. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, it's hard to not go out and see somebody doing something. Yeah. Right? Um, which is a crazy thought to think. Like, how under the radar this is. I think it's much bigger, the, the drug pandemic, if you will, um, than people even... I would say pan, that's the wrong word because it's kind of going against my point. But it's an even... I think people would be more shocked to realize how much it is everywhere. Yeah. Like, the numbers are big already, yeah. right? But I think that's even a small... Like, I think everybody almost has a vice. <laughs> like, yeah. like at least in certain areas, right? Um, and, you know, for people that don't do anything, good for you, right? Or, or don't do any kind of, you know, whether it's smoke a cigarette or weed or have a beer. If you're just complete clean slate, you figured it out, yeah. maybe, you know? But I feel like a lot of people have a vice. And my philosophy is always just make it legal because the amount of people that die from, you know, whether it's fentanyl yeah. or just, it, it's, it's almost worse. Addiction worked. period. The number of people who die from substance abuse and addiction period is incredible. And to think that we could treat those people using psychedelics is incredibly promising. Like LSD was used, I think, back in the 60s. Well, I know it was used to treat addiction. I'm just trying to be Well, heroin was correct. Heroin was developed to be the drug to end addiction. Oh, that I didn't know. Yeah, which is probably one of those that's why it's called heroin. It's the hero's drug. It was literally it was literally created in a lab to end addiction. And they ended up creating the most addictive drug. Yeah. Yeah, um, which is wild, wild to think. Um, but yeah, no, I mean it's, I mean, just, you can like literally do a case study on certain things, right? You can go over to Europe, and we'll just take alcohol as an example. You go over to Europe and you go to Italy, right? Kids have wine in young teen years, a glass of wine, yeah, and they're learned to respect it, yeah, right? What's the big problem in the United States? Binge drinking. Yeah. As soon as you hit 21, you are out of the bars partying, doing funnel shots, getting yeah. fucking plastered. Yeah. Right? And you don't have that in certain cultures. Don't get me wrong. They party. Yeah. But it's different. Yeah. It's different. Well, you're teaching kids from a relatively young age, no, don't do this. Don't touch this. You're not allowed to buy this. You're not allowed to do it. You can get in trouble if you try to do it. Don't yeah. do it. So it's like, yeah, what do you think all of that pressure is going to do? Especially when... And then as soon as they try it, they're like, wait, I didn't die. Yeah, not... nothing happened. <laughs> oh, wow, I actually feel kind of good. Oh, wow, my friends and I are having fun. We're having a good time. What's the big deal? Granted, then you get into DUIs and yeah. alcohol abuse. Well, this thing, there, there, there is drugs that I would 100% stay away from. Yeah. Right? Um, and me now having a family, I don't plan on doing much. You know, <laughs> you know I like to have my drinks, uh, my CBD, my... THC, whatever, you know, I'm more of a and stay at home kind of guy, yeah. you know, um, but I just, I feel like if you legalize it, it makes things safer. It makes... Stay at home. That is a, a perfect phrase that uh, reminds me of something that, uh, do you know who Graham Hancock is? This one's so familiar. 
He is that the is, guy who did the? Is he the? Does the asteroids that come in? Or no, no, okay, so. okay. Um, he gave a TED talk, which was banned, removed. Um, a banned TED talk. Yeah, wow. one of the few, I think. He gave a TED talk, I believe, about the war on consciousness, which was his name for the war on drugs. That his belief is that the government should have absolutely no say in what you put into your body in the privacy of your own home. If you want to explore your own consciousness using psychedelics, that is up to you. That is not up to the government. There's no reason for the government to bust in your door when you're experiencing mushroom trip in in your bedroom with your girlfriend. Like they have no business being there. That, that see that can be stretched though to other things, right? If you're raising your child poorly in the eyes of society, mm-hmm. right? And somebody's like, you know, they come to school, they have a bruise or something like that. You have no business on how to raise my child in my home. Um, so there could be a counter argument too, right? Yeah. Um, but I do agree, even with like vaccines. Like I'm vaccinated. In that case, though, you are inflicting harm on another human being and that human being is not consenting which means that you are um right committing an act of aggression against another person which yeah regardless of whether it's in the privacy of your own home or outside that is not okay or what about you know what you're there's a million examples i could probably give but no, i agree with you um in terms of like how you want to explore consciousness should be entirely up to you the life you want to live should be entirely up to you what you put in your body should be your choice um like like i was gonna use the vaccine thing i'm vaccinated i made the choice to get vaccinated if you decide you don't want to get vaccinated i think that should be your choice to your body right mm-hmm. um these vaccine passports are insane to me mm-hmm. you know um i don't want to get into that yeah that's a dangerous <laughs> yeah it's a dangerous dangerous road to go yeah um you know but uh, all right go i will i will also add to that because a lot of that was uh talking more meta than anything I guess concrete that um, happened to me as a result of reading that book. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so to give an example there was one day that I was having a great trip and found myself on the rooftop of a house in PB um, beautiful Saturday San Diego clear skies 75 degree weather like you couldn't ask for more perfect day as I'm standing on the top of this uh, house, I can look around me. I see all of PB. I see OB. I see downtown. I see what would be like Claremont going across the interstate. Is this my house? No, no. Okay. Um, <laughs> I can see Mount Soledad. All that shit. Okay. And I remember feeling overwhelmed because I think that's one of the good things about psychedelics is they help you feel things more intensely or they help you feel things that you might not might not normally feel so in this case i could look around me and i could feel the amount of wealth and i don't mean wealth in like a rich rich person sense i just mean we as humans have constructed all of this stuff 
whether it's houses, whether it's skyscrapers, whether it's the interstate, whether it's all these streets and street lamps and all this landscaping, all of this stuff. And I just remember feeling all of it. And when around that same time, when I was feeling uh, the, the wealth that we've created in San Diego, the thought of homelessness entered my mind. And I'm like, how can we have, why are there homeless people in a world in which all of this wealth exists? I had this just conflict in my head that I couldn't, uh, that I couldn't resolve. And that experience led me to want to live out of my car for three or four months just to see what it's like to be homeless in a sense. Did you? I did. You lived out of your I car? I lived out of my car. Well, I lived out of a rental car. I had to rent a car uh, and live in it for three months. Uh, that led me to look at the housing situation, like to just look at it in in the numbers sense. Uh, I remember a couple years ago when I was thinking about this a lot, in the U.S., there is something like uh, 13 million vacant homes in this country at any given time, give or take. And the homeless population is something like three or four million people. That there are enough vacant homes in this country to house three times our homeless population. The numbers might be different at this point. I'm trying to recall off, off the top of my head, but it, it was something absurd like that. And by saying that, I'm not implying that we should just start giving homes, like giving the vacant homes to, to homeless people. But it's just that path that something as simple as taking LSD and standing on, on the rooftop of a house can then lead me to. And then I guess as a result of that, I've just become more comfortable living with less and less. Uh, this, not This can't be accurate. So I just looked up. How many homeless people are there in the U.S.? And this is as of, this is from Google. This is from the first thing that pops up, which is mind-boggling to me. The number of homeless in the U.S. is estimated at 552,000, with around half a million individuals living in a state of homelessness. Things are not looking great. Still, on the bright side, it is a small percentage compared to the overall U.S. population. That's incredible. I didn't know it was that low now. Which counts over 300. I mean, this is from homelesspolicyadvice.net. And then uh, what if you do a Google search for the home- number, yeah, number that, of vacant homes? Yeah, let's see. Number of vacant homes in the U.S. Maybe the numbers I was thinking of were just... Jamie, can you look this up for me? <laughs> Young Jamie. Young Jamie. 17 million. Oh, gosh. That's... The White House report said in 2019, over half a million Americans don't have a home to sleep in on any given night, while almost 17 million potential homes were standing empty. Yeah. So, and you don't even need correct. a fraction of that because you can have like an apartment. You could have a tiny home. You can build a tiny home for ten or twenty thousand dollars. It's not like it's not like we're talking about building a 200000 dollars home for the homeless dude who's shooting up heroin down the street it's interesting so i was just just listening to a podcast and they're talking about the amount of money that people make that actually are trying to fix the homeless problem mm-hmm. and it's an absurd amount of people 
that are working on the government's dime to fix the homeless problem, and on top of that, the amount of money they're actually making. Yeah. Some of them are making a quarter of a million dollars. And if you break it down that way, a tiny home is 20,000. Yeah. That's 22 and a half homes. <laughs> yeah. Right? That's 22 homes you can have 10, right there. If it's ten thousand for a tiny home, ten thousand for a tiny home. Yeah, so I mean, now you're looking at twenty-five, at twenty homes. Yeah, twenty homes per year. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, it was ten homes uh, from the previous month. Um, I mean, that's just one person's salary. Yeah, and you fix changed the lives yeah. of. I don't fix it, but you changed the lives of. And that, and that salary is every year. Yeah. Right. So I mean, you change the lives. And of there's also people. like the homeless problem is such a layered problem right you, you don't necessarily just give somebody something without some kind of commitment to it or some kind of um yeah. like onboarding onboarding process I think, but, I think the first thing would be and this is weird coming from a yeah onboarding process coming from somebody that is okay with psychedelics things like that i think a lot of a lot of the people that are homeless have abused it yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know. So. Well, a lot. So it's a lot is a, a vague word. Uh, there, it's tough because we're talking about people, and people comes in all come in all shapes and sizes, regardless of what level of yeah. uh, the. Um, can't even think of the word. Uh, whatever level of the income scale that that you're looking at. And so, yeah, with homeless people, like you're going to have people who simply leech off the system. You're going to have people who ended up there due to a string of, you know, poor decisions or bad luck or in this country, a crippling medical bill that puts somebody into such heavy debt that they can't pull themselves out of. And, uh, a, lot, and a, lot, a lot of the individuals there can't even, I mean, we can get talk about this all day, so I'm not yeah. going to go down this wormhole because yeah. we could. Um, and we have what thirty minutes left to go through two more books. Yeah, yeah. So, so let, let, let's let's move on to the the next book. Vagabond. Oh. All right. So, book three was. Uh, I'm sorry. We did Zen. Uh, Zen. Zen, zen flesh, zen bones. Zen flesh, zen bones. We did debt. Uh, first five thousand years. years, and then how to change your mind. Right. So the next one would be vagabonding: colon an uncommon guide to the art of long-term world travel. This book completely upended my view of, or my thought on what it means to travel for an extended period of time. Before this book. I looked at travel as the one to two weeks of vacation that you get per year as working uh, a typical nine to five in this country, which might blow people's minds outside of this country because they get a lot more vacation. So two week, one to two weeks of vacation every year and travel to me was going to another place, staying in a hotel, granted staying like a budget hotel or whatever, and then in a sense, planning out every single day to make the best of it while you're there, and then flying back and returning to, to normal life. This book showed me that long-term travel is 
about minimizing expenses, maximizing the experience, and being open to anything. In a sense, I used to live uh, by the slogan, always say yes to adventure. So vagabonding is this idea that you save up uh, some amount of money, a few thousand dollars, something like that. And with a few thousand dollars, you can travel to a lot of places in the world for two, three, four, five, six months. As long as you are willing to stay in hostels, couch surf, uh, be open to staying with people that you meet along your journeys, and looking at countries that maybe people don't normally look at. And I hesitate on saying that because it's it's mostly an American thing, uh, because I'm thinking mostly of third world countries. And I think the sentiment in America, in the United States, is that vacations should be to nice places, whether that's Europe, whether that's... I'd like to remind some people that there is a lot of beaches in the world. Yeah. And there's a lot of coast. And there's a yeah. lot of beautiful views. Yeah. Um, even in Mexico, third world country. There's some beautiful, beautiful places out of Mexico I've been to. Yeah. Um, and some great experiences that I've had in Mexico. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was in, I guess, is there a second world country? Would they, is there such Not a really. thing? Yeah, there's nothing, just from first to third, right? Mm-hmm. It's like you got to just tear up straight to number one. Like you just got to jump yeah. to. Like, and who are we to call a country? I mean, yeah. listen, I. Okay, go ahead. Continue on. Fair. I, 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 can, yeah. I can rant. I'm a ranter sometimes. So, based on this book, my first my first backpacking trip, in air quotes, was to Thailand in 2015. Because I I started reading this book right around the time that I was getting ready to, um, or that I was planning a trip to Thailand with a, a friend of mine. And... After, I didn't even finish the book. I made it, I don't know, like a quarter of the way through before I was just really excited to try out some of the stuff that they talk about in the book. I went to Thailand without booking anything other than the flight. I just wanted to see what would happen if I remain open to opportunity, try to travel with minimal expenses, and just try to meet people along the way to see what would happen. And within those two weeks that I was in Thailand, I had not booked anything, flew into Bangkok, ended up taking a bus down to a beach town, taking a boat over to another beach town, taking a boat over to an island, a boat back to the mainland, a plane up into the mountains, a motorcycle further up into the mountains, back down, and then a plane back to Bangkok and I flew out. And all that happened just because I would check into a hostel, I would meet a few people, have a conversation, see what they did, see what they're looking forward to, see what the recommendations are. And then I would also get recommendations for places to stay, cool hostels that they stayed at, cheap hostels that they stayed at, cool places to to go check out, cool things to do. And I remember getting back from that trip or at the end of that, that two weeks, which that two weeks that I spent in Thailand, room and board, 
I think only cost me $200. So hostels, food, booze, uh, uh, bus tickets, uh, plane tickets within the country. I think I only spent $200, $200 the whole two weeks. So after that trip, I thought to myself, man, what would it be like if I could do that without a timeline? If I could just leave and go somewhere and then just see what happens. And then that is actually what led, that idea is what led to my backpacking trip that I took in 2017, where I bought a one-way ticket to Mexico and then slowly backpacked my way down through Central America before uh, coming back after about six months. Now, you, even when, that when you trip, do that, I would, hold on, hold okay, on. Okay. even that trip, I was gone for six months and I was specifically recording my finances every single month in order to show people how cheaply you can fucking do this. Because each month I was only spending something like 500 to $1,000 a month for room and board, for bus tickets, for, um, you know, booze and weed. And if I had, if I wanted to, if I could cut out booze and weed, I mean, that was probably like half of that <laughs> 500 to $1,000. Yeah, having a good time. Yeah, just always hang around other backpackers, other chill people. Uh, you want to go get a drink? You want to go, go get to a, a bar? Drink. You want to yeah. go party? You... Yeah, there's yeah. any number of any number of, um, yeah, things to do and ways to, ways to spend money, but it is so much cheaper outside of this country and in... These are things I countries. wish I did before my, my child, right? But... You know, I, I love the idea of backpacking mm-hmm. um, and in a different life, maybe, you know. Um, and I still, like, for, for me, I've fallen into the, you know, I want to I wanna travel to, you know, different destinations and see things, but I have responsibilities, right? Yeah. So I'm living that life that you broke away from, in yeah. a sense. Uh, but again, everybody's measures of happiness is different, right? Yeah. Um, you know, so it's, 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 it's unique in a sense of, you know, my, my dad actually has a friend that it's his best friend, one of his best friends. And you remind me so much of him. Uh, his name is Dominic. And he's been close to my family ever since. But he's pretty much kind of lived that life. He's yeah. just, he, sell, he sold his business with selling antiques. Mm-hmm. So he had a warehouse and then they would have people do auctions and he would sell antiques. But he just traveled. Yeah. He went to all these different countries, experienced different culture. And just like you were saying about the Zen master, he kind of lets his family. Yeah. He has, he has two beautiful kids. Uh, he, he was married, um, but he chose the lifestyle over the responsibility. Yeah. Right? Now, you're coming at it with not the same type of responsibility. Yeah. You don't have a family. I don't right. have a relationship. Now, how would you tell somebody? Because I'm fascinated, as me personally, like, what advice would you give me? Uh, somebody that has a nine to five has a mortgage, has a child, has a relationship. I would recommend reading the book Vagabonding. And I think that that book is just a total game changer when it comes to. Would you travel with a kid on those trips? Yeah. You would take to hostels and. Yeah. Yeah, there are families that stay at hostels, and there are different kinds of hostels. I, I had no idea. Um, I had never stayed at a hostel before I went to Thailand. Thailand was my first exposure to hostels. And then since staying in hostels there and in Central America, I have come to learn that there are different types of hostels in the same way that there are different types of hotels. 
there are hostels that cater to that like 18 to 22 crowd that they just finished school and they want to get out there and see the world, which is typically more of a European thing, not really something that happens in this country. So a lot of those hostels are suited for that young, just figured out what freedom is. Um, it's time to just let loose and have fun for a while. Then you have hostels that are more suited to you know, young professionals, you could say, that have already done the partying thing and are more, inter more interested in the travel and like just meeting other people type thing. Then you have hostels that are more suited toward the the hippie um, hippie yoga lifestyle that are just very mellow and everybody's there to um, you know meditate, find themselves, whatever that means. Then you even have hostels. Whatever that means. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, then you have hostels that are for people who are older. Their hostels are actually one of the um, one of the main ways that locals take vacations because the average person in a third world country can't afford to go stay at Marriott uh, but they can afford to take their entire family to stay at a hostel in you know the city an hour and a half away on the beach something like that so there are hostels out there for just all types of people. how many hostels have you stayed at uh, I think in Thailand, in Thailand, I stayed in, I think six, probably around six in Central America. I was moving around. That's a tough one because I moved around some and then didn't maybe like 20 to 30. Now, was there ever nights that you couldn't make it to a hostel? You're like, oh, I don't think shit. so. Or towards, and this is another question, towards the end of your trips, were you ever like, oh shit, I'm running out of money? Or, oh shit, I need to get home somehow? <laughs> no. Like, you never were like, oh, I spent all the money, how am I going to get a I, plane ticket back to America? No. I have been fortunate enough. Um, are you taking cash or what are you taking? When uh, when I went to Thailand, I took a combination of cash and used cards. So I used used my card when I could, and then used cash most of the time. Same thing with uh, Central America. I would take a certain amount of cash out that I wanted for that month, and then I would just try to use that, uh, and then go to the ATM um, if I needed more or towards the end of that month. But I've been fortunate enough to always have a small amount of money as a cushion so that financial worries were not a pressing thing for me. Would you, would you consider everybody having a, a threshold? Like when you hit this threshold, it's time. Yeah. I think that's just reasonable from a, a life perspective as well. Like, at, when I was in my 20s, I just always had tried to have a minimum of $1,000 in my checking account just to take into account fluctuations and, and shit. And then at a certain point that grows uh, and now there's just, there's a certain number that no matter how I'm living or moving around, I just try to keep it around that. What's that number? Um, yeah, I guess it's not a big deal. I try to maintain $10,000 at any given time. Okay. Sometimes it goes above that, sometimes it goes below that. But I've noticed that psychologically, 
once I have more than $10,000, I get pretty lazy about making more money. Because I'm like, this is a lot of money. I can live for a long time off $10,000. So the idea of like working harder for more, uh, I've tried it multiple times. And just each time I hit that number, I'm just like, how much more do I really need? And in all fairness, I recognize that in the grand scheme of things, that's not a lot of money. Like, if I reached the age of 50, 60, 70 and still only had $10,000 and started feeling, you know, rising medical concerns or health concerns, I, I know I'm, I'm in trouble. At the same time, there's a part of me that hopes I can die before that. In a sense, yeah. There's, there's a part of me that hopes that I live long enough and take good enough care of my body that I'm able to be as physically free as I am now. And then one day I just go to sleep and don't wake up. So, I mean, that's a, that's a great segue into, well, not segue, but in regards to, like, I think a really interesting topic would be vagabonds for the elderly. Yeah. Right. So, like, if you could crack that code, like, if you kind of put some thought into that, be like, okay, how there are hostels? There are hostels for elderly people. Right, which is great. And uh, like to keep, like, is your goal to just continue to travel and travel and travel and travel and travel and travel, or like, what's the end game? It's difficult because this world is such a big place, and one of the things that traveling tends to teach people is holy shit, this world is so big, there's not enough time in a single lifetime to see and experience all of it. So at a certain point, you have to pick. You have to choose what is important for you and and what isn't. I... I haven't reached that stage yet. I recognize that I'm not getting any younger. I also recognize how much I love different cultures, different languages, uh, history of, of different areas. And I struggle with, on a pretty regular basis, how I want the rest of my life to go. Because as I just said, there's a part of me that wants to just travel and keep living the way that I'm living until I just go to sleep one day and don't wake up. Uh, there's another part of me that absolutely does want uh, a family uh, or at the very least children I don't know if I want a uh, a wife a, a partner what were you going to adopt um, not necessarily I want my kids like I want to pass on my my DNA I just don't know if I want to co-parent my children okay so I think because nothing lasts forever there will come a day when I start to slow down and think, yeah, now is probably the time. I haven't reached that point yet. And so for now, I just try to keep moving around, keep exploring what it means for me to work and uh, make a living, what it means to work in general, what it means to have a way of living that keeps me healthy rather than damages my body the way that sitting at a desk all day damages the body. 
as we're taking and it's down 35 some yeah as, <laughs> as we're, we're taking down some bourbon as we're, <laughs> as we're drinking bourbon um so that is one of those decisions that i have not had have not come to a concrete concrete um choice on all, all fair things i mean I, I think for anybody myself included to think that you have a vague idea of where you're going to be in a yeah. decade yeah. from now, you know, things like right now you might be going through a phase. Yeah. Which, you know, could yeah. be, and which is a great phase to have. Yeah. I mean, I was very fortunate where I got to travel at a relatively young age, you know, being a published author, I got to travel and see a bunch of different cities in the United States and sell my book and talk to people about something I love, um, which I thoroughly enjoy uh, doing. And you and I had a conversation off, off, you know, recording here about how much I love writing and just making i want that to be my my thing eventually um but i mean to to have any idea where you're gonna be a decade i look back a decade ago yep decade ago i was 22 years old living in buffalo new york had no idea be moving to san diego now i have a a, you know hopefully soon to be wife kid and home and four jobs later you know yeah um and seven different moves later within san diego I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah. Absolutely crazy. Um, what, what can happen in a decade? But I, I commend... And some of those changes have absolutely nothing to do with your own personal decisions. <laughs> Most of them. Yeah. Most like, of them. you could you could get into a car wreck down yeah. the street, and the person that you run into is the one who offers you the next job that is your dream job. Like, you have no control over that whatsoever. Well, even the people that I've met across the way in the last 10 years, some came in my life. You know, I don't know if you know Medea, uh, Tyler Perry. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah so, yeah. so there's this one skit in Medea. Um, I can't believe I'm quoting Medea right now. Where basically she says, you know, Tyler Perry basically says, you know, some people come into your life and they're they are a, you know, a branch, mm-hmm. right? They're there for a, a while, and then they they break away yeah. and you know whatever some people come into your life and they're a leaf right and it, it literally it'll flutter away and die and it's gone and it's, yeah. it's you know in and out right and then some people are the fucking roots right mm-hmm. but think of all the branches that changed your direction yeah. in life and all the leaves that came in and swayed you somewhere. you have zero control over the wind yeah you know what i mean so like anything zero can control come- over the wind the lightning <laughs> the people who come by right. and decide to chop down that tree right, right. the the wildfire that blows through and right. yeah you have, you have zero control over it but it all shapes you mm-hmm. you know what i mean so i mean i just think of the people that i've met across the way some came in my life were great some came in my life were bad i've learned from experience i've had with people and it's all about growing right yeah. and i think your journey right now is super commendable and amazing and i think it's, it's for those of you that are listening, I mean, just yeah, and hopefully you've tuned in this long. Uh, <laughs> the the you know Rick Rick basically is traveling on like some people you know said ten thousand was the number right to to accumulate ten thousand and then to go out and to see more and do more and be that free is I think the the goal here, yeah right for and I think anybody that is a single person. Um, and this could be married, it could be in a relationship, but I think just focusing on people that have the opportunity where you have no constraints, it's much easier for you to take that opportunity, save up a little bit of money, and go. Yeah. 
And yeah. even even on that, if the idea of five hundred to a thousand dollars a month of expenses is still it still feels like a lot, that was also uh, not working. Like you can travel. There are people who travel who stay and work at a hostel for a month, six months, a year, and then simply up and go to a new place and work at another hostel. Like they're able to completely support themselves while they're traveling just by working at the hostels that they stay at. So it's so sad. To, like getting back to your homeless point, so sad. Yeah. Like those people could probably live in that kind of life. Yeah. You know, if we can rehabilitate and get them back on their feet and show them, you know, like, hey, you don't need to, you know, you can walk away from this debt. You can pick yourself back up. There's so much to see in the world. You don't need that much. Yeah. Like we're talking about $10,000 home. You can give probably a homeless person $10,000 say, the only thing you have to do is not stop and go. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And like, yeah, but that, that's just, you know, a yeah, a thought process in my head. But go ahead. What, 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 I don't mean to cut you off there. <laughs> um, I think the only other thing I would add is to not overthink the money thing too much. That there are just, there's so many ways to earn a living while you're traveling if that's something that you want to do i i just i feel like i've met so many people who traveling has just completely changed their life uh even my friend kalia who i'm staying with right now like she just got back from spain a couple weeks ago and that was her first solo international trip and now she's moving to spain in january like it's for some people, that is all it takes is that just one exposure to life outside of, of, their bubble. of the bubble. And yeah. even if that bubble is all of the United States. But I think that's that's a huge thing to touch on, which is basically like life is not this one thing. Yes. There's so many different ways you can live life. Yeah. And it doesn't need to be in the constraints of corporate America. Yeah. Um, now, it's scary breaking away. It's yeah. scary to take the plunge, but yeah. I think it's much easier when you have less holding you down. Yeah. Right. Um, and one thing that old people, older people say as they're getting closer to death, I wish I would have taken more risks. I wish I would have traveled more. I wish I would have met more people. Like, I, I don't know of any older person getting closer to death that thinks man i wish i would have just worked harder i wish i would have made more money i wish i would have bought a third or fourth house like it's always the regrets that people have as they get closer to death is about the things the things that they didn't experience travel i, I feel like a lot of people don't say I wish I played that Xbox more. Yeah. <laughs> or I wish I. Oh man. You know. Uh, yeah. That is one of my vices. Video games. Yeah. No, I mean that's the thing. We all have yeah. a vice, whether it's drug related or, you know, everybody has a tick. You yeah. know what I mean? Everybody has one, and I guarantee you, you might. And some people have some weird ones, mm -hmm. you know, like. But it's it, it is it is 
part of human nature. Yeah. To have something, you know, whether it's a distraction or it's just. everyone making entries there uh, okay so i think it's a good segue to hop into that Last fourth book. and final book here fifth and final, fifth and final book. book sorry fifth and final book. the drinks are kicking in. yeah okay so the the, the fifth and final book here um, which is called Obstacle? Is that... The Obstacle is the Way by the Ryan Holiday. The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. Yeah. Okay. So The Obstacle is the Way is a book about Stoicism. And Stoicism is a philosophy that I believe emerged in ancient Greece uh, over 2,000 years ago. And The Obstacle is the Way, similarly to Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, is a collection of, of stories as well as um, just writing from, from the author. And the story that I always tell from the book that I think, or maybe there's two of them, that exemplify Stoicism is one uh, about an, a man in the 60s or 70s who's a boxer, professional boxer, black man, wrongly convicted of, I believe, a triple homicide. So this is the hurricane from Bob Dylan. Okay, okay. Um, turns out he was guilty. Oh, really? Yeah, he confessed later in prison. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, uh, <laughs> to finish the story with that ending, um, so he was uh, convicted, sent to prison, and there was an exchange between him and the warden where he was like, look, uh, I'm innocent. Leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. If you treat me less than human, I'll show you what less than human looks like. Something to that effect. So he spent the time in prison until his appeal, learning about law, learning about his case, and then uh, successfully appealed and was released. Um, Talk about Reuben Carter? I'm not sure. So Reuben Reuben Hurricane Carter was an American-Canadian middleweight boxer wrongfully convicted of murder and later released following a petition of habeas corpus after serving almost 20 years in prison. Okay, yeah, maybe that would have been it. I think so. And that was the that was the Bob Dylan song I was referring to, but I'm, I'm I may have been wrong, and I'm willing to admit that. Was Reuben Carter guilty? Um... Was back in the war. Single life he was paroled in nineteen eighty one. He was paroled. Okay, I'm gonna look into this later, but honestly, well, that ending actually doesn't impact the the lesson of the story. So, okay, uh, when he was released, he had some kind of interaction with a journalist reporter who asked him if he was gonna press charges against the state for the the wrongful conviction. And his response was something to the effect of, no, because if I take any action, that will be me admitting that they took something away from me that I want back. When in my head, I was simply in a situation, in a location that uh, didn't want to be. And once I got out, then it's just time for me to resume my life. 
so that idea of similar to to zen right just something happens to you you roll with the punches and simply move forward so regardless of yeah whether he was guilty or not just that that mindset of not holding grudges not being resentful not hating the universe for for what it does to you there was a, a another story i think it was about edison who was woken up in the middle of the night by one of his sons who told him that his in a sense uh campus he had like a campus of laboratories that he was pumping out um patents for or patents from so uh his son wakes him up in the middle of the night tells him that his some of the some of the buildings on the the campus are on fire so he gets up uh runs um gets there and sees i think it was like three or four buildings up in flames but it because of the chemicals that were in the buildings the flames themselves were like this beautiful mixture of different greens and blues and and yellows and he turns to his son and says go get your mother uh she'll never see a fire this beautiful so that idea again of look there's nothing i can do while all of this is going up in flames so i might as well just appreciate what's happening now and then move forward after it's done so that idea similar to zen flesh zen bones and just always being present always appreciating uh what's going on around you and being grateful for it has allowed me to navigate challenging or painful or uncomfortable situations in my life with little to no stress or worry about my future what happens next so you kind of have to disconnect yourself from tomorrow not necessarily disconnecting myself just knowing that i have made it this far given all of the crap that i've gone through and not to say that my crap is any worse than anybody else's crap uh but we all go through crap we all get hurt we all get deceived we all get lied to we all maybe not we all lose a job but a lot of us lose jobs a lot of us are, are disappointed at some point and knowing that everything can still work out and being confident that everything can still work out and even taking control and saying it is within my power to make everything work out there might be road bumps there might be more shit that gets in my way but at least i know in the end everything will be okay or i'll be dead and then it doesn't matter i mean that that's that's it's interesting the mindset because it's i don't know if you'd be singing the same tune though if you had a child yeah probably not that's a totally different um universe because then my actions and my presence have an impact on um another life form that in a sense i'm responsible for would you be able to be the zen master and walk away from my own child probably not i think that's where we're going to end this yeah <laughs> no but um i i honestly feel i feel like i've learned a lot one about you uh to a path to 
freeing yourself, if you want, from the constraints of modern society and living a life on your terms when it comes to being able to travel and experience life, mm-hmm. right? Which I think, I think not a lot even necessarily that. freeing oneself from the constraints of modern society, but just being able to recognize them so you can navigate life through them. Because most people in this country um, want some uh, painting of the American dream, right? People want a family, people want to be able to support themselves. And to do that, there's a lot of tricky stuff that goes on that sometimes you have to give away a piece of yourself in order to get a little bit more. Life is about compromises. Yeah. I mean, it really is. Um, life is about compromises. And I think the best way to say it is you figured out how to not be crippled by modern society and to still live a life worth living. Yeah. Boiling it, boiling it down. You know, you may have fallen in a hole financially, whatever it may be, but you did navigate around it. You did figure out how to, when I say live life on your terms, it's more along the lines of you still live. Yeah. Um, so I think it's more along the lines of you. I think if anybody's listening to this and you take away from this podcast is basically life is worth living. And no matter what situation you're in, you can figure out a way how to get something out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and it's all about taking that first step. So whether it's working a job, saving up 10K, or maybe it's buying enough for a plane ticket and working at a hostel for six months, or, you know, maybe it's just, you know, this summer I want to go, just go. Yeah. See where life takes, whatever it is. Maybe you want to find yourself. I think the first step starts with, the first step, right? Yeah. The first step starts with making a plan and having enough confidence in yourself to execute. Yeah. If um, you have two weeks of vacation saved up, if you have one week of vacation saved up, just buy a plane ticket somewhere yeah. and don't book a hotel. Yeah. Just see what you can manage to figure out once you get there. Ask locals for recommendations. and. So you're, you're going on a trip right now, right? You're, you're taking a quick trip? I am currently on, I'm currently on like a work business trip in San Diego for three months, even though the work is in, in Vegas, but figured it would be was way, way more fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and you have peoples here. Yeah. I have all my peoples here. And then in January, when Kalia moves to Spain, I will actually be going over there with her and probably living, living over there for a month. Maybe more, I don't know. Uh, and then after that, I will be likely going down to Colombia for the indeterminate future. Not just Colombia, but... But South America. Yeah, South America and hopefully the rest of the world. Are you going to get over to Africa? I would love to get over to Africa. I think priorities, it, priorities are South America, because I was really looking forward to getting down there when I was going through Central America. I had heard so many good things about Colombia. I've always wanted to go to Brazil. I want to do ayahuasca in Peru. So there's just a lot of reasons that I want to go to South America. And then after that, priority number two is Japan because love the culture, um, love the scenery, love the food. It's interesting, Japan. And I would, I would really like to be a monk. 
You're, would, you're considering leaving the, just, everything behind. Yeah, going. it's been on it's been on my list for a while, and just is that a life you could walk away from eventually? Or is that something? Yeah, that would just be yeah. You, so you do you plan on like some people when they convert to like priest like that's a lifelong commitment. Is monk yeah, the you're, same? You are in a sense you are free to come and go. Would you leave? Uh, I, I think I would. I think the... I would leave after a couple years. I feel like a, two years is the right amount of time to reach a level of comfort when it's time to go somewhere else. Now the big question is: Would you play D and D still? <laughs> it is something that I have thought about on a regular basis, and for the time being, I am going to put a halt on it. So. so tonight, so for those of you who don't know, Rick and I are playing the D&D game together. Um, is tonight your last session, possibly? Uh, it might be my last session. I Ever for likely years? No, because I, I still play in Barney's campaign on Sundays. Right. So Barney and I are trying to figure out a uh, heroic ending for, for my character before I, I leave the country. Um, so you have a couple more sessions left. Yeah, and... I think I will be back here after Vegas next next weekend. Um, so there will be a few more sessions then. But the holidays might be tricky with with everybody. Yeah. So well, we'll get into that later off, yeah. off, off camera. But um, I'm excited for you, man. Thanks, man. Is there anything you want to say to people's, uh, you know, the whole millions of people that listen to this podcast? Maybe someday. You can always make more money, but you can never make more time. All right, let's leave it on that. Uh, thank you for listening to to this uh, podcast. Uh, if you like what you heard, um, obviously, you know the quality will get better, my friends, in terms of audio production and things like that. But I personally enjoyed this conversation a lot. If you like the conversation, stick around because we're gonna have a lot more. Uh, meaningful and amazing conversations uh, just like this one.